Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Every five minutes, someone dies while waiting for a compatible donor heart, liver, or kidney. On a remote island in Lake Superior, a team of geneticists strive to engineer an animal with human-compatible organs, thereby saving millions of lives. But these ancestors are not the docile herd animals they envision. Instead, the project spawns something big, something evil, something hungry. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler is available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Demon in a deerskin hat. It's tempting to believe that we, as modern, civilized humans, have a relatively firm grasp on the workings of our world. We've managed to figure out how gravity works. We've mapped the stars, made precise calendars. We've built rockets that have carried probes into space, documenting the farthest reaches of our solar system. We have nuclear power and broadband internet. We fly over the ocean in jetliners. We've become so sophisticated, so apparently advanced, that we've grown certain, however misled we may be, that there's nothing new for us to learn about our world. We scoff at reports of flying saucers and ghosts, but only because we're scared to state the honest facts, afraid to admit that we really know very little about life and death and the universe. Every time a corpse of an unrecognizable animal washes up on the shore of some beach, a rash of headlines are spawned. Mystery creature baffles experts, they say. And, of course, it usually only takes a few weeks for said experts to deduce that the mystery creature had only been a deformed sea lion or a coyote with mange that had been swept out to sea. But in the interim, if you look at the comments section of any of those articles... You'll find a horde of comments from people who are certain they know the species of that animal. Certain about exactly what is and isn't contained within the great black depths of our oceans. They turn up their noses at the idea of undiscovered monsters. If something like that existed, we would know about it by now, they say. The problem with being convinced about something like that is you don't know what you don't know. Me, I could stand here and say without shame that I am certain there are things in our world we don't know about. There's things in our world that we're completely unaware of. And they're not all hiding at the bottom of the ocean. Some of them are closer than we think. I learned that the hard way when I worked the graveyard shift at the Red Hat. The Red Hat was a drive through burger joint right off Highway 15 in southern Utah. 
It was open 24 hours a day, which made it a staple for late-night road trippers on their way to Vegas or Salt Lake City. Situated along an open stretch of highway, the establishment had its very own off-ramp. It wasn't accompanied by a gas station, rest stop, or any other type of service. The Red Hat was the only building for 20 miles in either direction. It stood smack dab in the middle of the unoccupied stretch between Beaver and Paragona. I lived in the small town of Parowan, about 20 minutes south of the diner, and every night I'd drive along that unlit stretch of highway, looking out through the darkness until a lone cluster of lights emerged on the horizon. As I got closer, that cluster of lights would reveal itself. The familiar neon sign reading, The Red Hat, open 24 hours, would come into view. The lone streetlight illuminating the parking lot. The milky glow emanating from the windows of the small dining room. Sitting on the restaurant's roof was a plaster casting of the establishment's mascot, a rosy-cheeked man with a checkered apron and a red chef's hat. Although the statue was hard to see at night since none of the property's few exterior lights were directed at it, this sometimes created the illusion that a robust, shadowy figure was lurking on the roof when you approached the restaurant in the twilight hours. Sometimes when I'd arrive at the restaurant at 10 p.m. to relieve the night shift, I'd park my car and just sit there for a minute. I'd look out into the darkness the unending curtain of black that surrounded the establishment, extending infinitely and seemingly every direction, unless there happened to be a car approaching and you could see the glint of its headlights cutting through the unlit desert landscape. It almost seemed like you were surrounded by empty space, like the little patch of pavement on which the red hat stood was its own solitary planet, completely unincorporated from everything else around it. It made me feel like if I stood with my back to the restaurant and walked in any direction, I could walk right off the edge of the world. But that was only when the highway was dark, and the weary drivers weren't pulling off at the exit for late-night milkshakes and french fries, just something to stave them off until they got to wherever they were going. I don't want to give you the impression that the Red Hat was unpopular, or that the food was terrible. The menu was... indulgent garnering the place a cult-like popularity with passing drivers. The most notable item was the chili cheeseburger, which came with two beef patties and a generous helping of homemade chili and cheddar cheese, all double-wrapped in wax paper so it didn't spill out in your lap as you drove. It was the type of place you'd see Guy Fieri eat at on TV, although as far as I knew, the mayor of Flavortown had never even heard of the Red Hat which was probably for the best. Because what I experienced there was not the stuff of feel-good Food Network programming. It was the closest thing to a nightmare that I've ever lived through, and the path that I've taken through life hasn't exactly been a smooth one. It started on a night in early April. I was working the graveyard shift, and my co-worker, Emmanuel, had called out sick last minute. While they struggled to find me a replacement, I manned the restaurant alone. My boss, Melanie, had stayed over a couple hours to help me manage orders until things slowed down for the night. When she left, it was almost midnight, 
and thankfully traffic was slow enough that I could manage on my own. It took me a while to fill people's orders, but most of the customers were understanding about it. Around 1 a.m., I found myself with a bit of downtime. There was nobody in the drive-thru, no orders to prepare, nothing to clean up. I was sitting on the counter next to the register, reading a paperback copy of The Stories of Brees DJ Pancake. He was a writer that I admired at the time. He reminded me a bit of Raymond Carver in his bleakness. As I turned the page, I heard static on my headset. I set the book down and looked at the monitor that displayed the feed for the drive through camera. There were no cars in the drive through lane. But there was... something. There was some sort of vague movement in the background of the monitor. Maybe it was just a speck of dust floating in front of the camera. Or some distortion in the feed. But it looked like something had moved out there. I turned my eyes to the nearest window, wondering if I could get a better view of whatever I had heard. And it was then that the voice came through the speaker. Hang a lantern on your rifle. The voice said. An uncontrollable tremor came over me when the words met my ears. They were spoken so clearly, as if someone had been standing there in the drive through line speaking directly into the microphone. I looked again at the camera feed. I couldn't see any cars or people, any traces of movement. Is somebody messing with me? I wondered. And just as I did, the voice came through my headset again. Hang a lantern on your rifle. There's a pariah out there in that darkness, and he means to do us harm. The voice was dry and somber. It sounded so genuinely disturbed that it left me stunned. Who's out there? I asked, my eyes still fixed on the camera feed. There was that hint of movement again. Something wispy that lingered on the screen for a moment then disappeared. I'm calling the police, I said into the receiver, although I wasn't entirely sure why. I had no real intention of doing so. I didn't even know if anyone was really out there. All I knew was that I was freaked out and I was grasping for anything I could to make me feel like I was in control of the situation. I took a flashlight out of the drawer that was next to the cash register and clicked it on. Outside, the air was crisp and still. Through the darkness, I could just make out the snow-capped Tushar Mountains that stood to the east. There were no cars in the parking lot, no explanation for the voice I'd heard or the strange movement I'd seen on the camera feed. I pointed my flashlight at the drive through lane. Patches of fog floated through the spear of light. Beyond the edge of the parking lot, I could see the quiet fields that comprised the Parowan Valley. No movement, no sound. Until, suddenly, what sounded like a gunshot rang out. I nearly jumped out of my skin, waving the flashlight around in terror. As I searched for the source of the shot, I heard the voice again. It sounded distant, like it wasn't a person speaking, but the echo of a voice instead. Don't let him get behind you, the voice said. It was full of fear and desperation. I spun around reflexively, fixing the beam of the flashlight on the restaurant. 
For a moment, I could have sworn I saw a figure standing in the parking lot, halfway between me and the restaurant. They were tall, wearing a black duster coat that hung almost all the way to the ground, and they had on a rough, full-brimmed hat that hung down over their eyes. Can you see him? The distant voice called out, and suddenly another shot ripped through the quiet night. I fell to my knees, certain I was under attack. When I lifted my eyes and looked around, nobody was there. I got to my feet and dusted off my pants. I could see a pair of headlights approaching from the highway, and I started walking back towards the restaurant. When the car got a little closer, I was relieved to see that it was Sean, the relief cook my boss had called in. I couldn't remember the last time I'd been so happy to see someone. As Sean pulled into the parking lot, I swung the flashlight back to the open fields. A few dozen yards into the tall grass, I caught sight of movement. There were men out there, I realized. Three, maybe more. They were dressed like pioneers, wearing overalls and tweed slacks, carrying lanterns and rifles. They walked low and hunched, like they were on a hunt, stalking some unseen prey. I squinted, unable to comprehend what I was seeing. I looked back at Sean, who was just stepping out of his car. Hey, Sean, I said. When I returned the flashlight to the field, all I could see were the wavering blades of grass. What the hell are you doing out here? Sean asked as he approached. I'm... I scanned the open field with the flashlight a few more times. Um, nothing, I said. I just came outside to take out the trash and I thought I heard something. I turned off the flashlight and walked back inside with Sean. My heart was still racing, but I didn't say a word about what I'd just seen, or thought I'd seen, at least. At that point, I still wasn't convinced that this wasn't all just some elaborate prank. If it was, then there was certainly a chance that Sean was in on it. And if that were the case, then I certainly wasn't giving him the satisfaction of knowing how much his little stunt had scared me. For the rest of my shift, I couldn't stop thinking about what happened. That line I'd heard spoken through the drive through speaker played on repeat in my head. Hang a lantern on your rifle. There's a pariah out there in that darkness, and he means to do us harm. It seemed like a strange thing to say if your intent was to prank somebody. If they'd wanted to scare me, why didn't they say something like, I have a gun, or I'm gonna kill you? Why would they say something as vague and cryptic as, hang a lantern on your rifle? And why would they dress up like frontiersmen, all decked out in straw hats and overalls and old twill shirts, walking through the fields with rifles and kerosene lanterns? It didn't make any sense, and neither did the figure I'd seen standing over by the restaurant, the tall, dark form. I'd only seen him for an instant, but his appearance had shaken me. The hat on his head was ragged and shoddily made, as if he'd patched it together himself with a hide he'd skinned. A man that tall would make noise when he moved, but whoever he was, he'd disappeared silently and, seemingly, in the blink of an eye. Just like the gun-toting pioneers, I turned my head and he was gone. Well, I thought, 
If it was a prank, it was pulled off flawlessly. The point of the exercise, though, I couldn't begin to imagine. If my utter confusion was what the pranksters had hoped to achieve, then they surely succeeded. But what if it wasn't a prank? I wondered. What other options did that leave? I'd either had a genuine experience of something unexplained, or I'd hallucinated the whole thing. I felt like a character in a David Lynch movie, my experience being equal parts fear and absurdity. For the rest of my shift, I was jumpy and agitated. I kept thinking somebody was going to sneak up behind me or whisper something in my ear. But eventually the fear slipped away from me. I wouldn't go as far as to say that I went home after my shift and had a nice restful sleep, though it wasn't exactly unusual for me to sleep poorly. Sleeping during the day and working at night was something I never really got used to. But even sleeping at night wasn't always easy for me. I occasionally suffered from what I've heard people call sleep paralysis. I'm not keen on sleep science or psychological conditions, but I had a debilitating recurring nightmare, which consisted of a weight being lowered onto my chest. Sometimes it was a boulder that had fallen on top of me. Sometimes it was a massive slab of concrete that I'd somehow become trapped under. Slowly, the weight would press down on me, crushing me, squeezing the life out of my body until I woke in fright, gasping for air. I've heard the phenomenon referred to as old hag syndrome, the feeling that someone is sitting on your chest, paralyzing you. The nightmares, which had been particularly bad at the time, were actually part of the reason I'd been willing to work the night shift at the Red Hat. I thought that perhaps an interruption to my sleep cycle would inhibit the dreams from coming through. Did it work? Well, not exactly. But I did feel like I dreamed less, or at least remembered less of my dreams when I slept during the day. Such was the case one night, later that month, when I woke up and got ready for work. I hadn't dreamed, or if I did, I couldn't remember what about. My head was blissfully empty. I made something to eat and got ready for work. By that point, I was prepared to write the previous incident off. I could attribute it to a lack of sleep or any number of other things, and eventually it would be just as insignificant as the time when I was a kid and I was certain I'd seen a shark in our swimming pool. That night started out fairly normal. I was working with Sean again, and while he and I weren't exactly close friends, there were definitely worse people to be paired with. He'd grown up right there in the Parowan Valley, born to a family of farmers. But he was a clear departure from the typical southern Utah resident. He liked to wear tight black jeans and had a peculiar habit of shaving parts of his eyebrows. He was obsessed with the band Faith No More and would sometimes play their music in the restaurant. I was fairly compliant, but I did tell him that if I ever had to listen to that dreadful easy-like-a-Sunday-morning song, I would quit my job on the spot and walk out. It was around two in the morning, and things were quiet. Sean stood over the grill doing something on his phone. I was sitting down near the register playing Sudoku when I noticed a car pulling into the drive-thru on the monitor. 
It looked like an old Lincoln Town car from the 1970s. As I watched the car pull closer, I noticed that same distortion on the screen. That faint, wispy movement. Welcome to the Red Hat, I said. Order when you're ready. I looked up the monitor. The grainy feed just showed the boxy old car sitting there in the drive-thru. I squinted, trying to get a good look at who might be inside. And then suddenly, the car was gone. But it hadn't driven away. It just blinked out of existence. Or at least that's what it felt like. One moment it was there and the next it was gone. But then I began to notice other small things had changed as well. I felt like I had missing time. Like something had occurred in the time before that old car had mysteriously vanished. I wasn't standing where I'd been standing before. And I had something in my hand. I looked down and saw a $10 bill folded in my palm. It looked antique. And upon closer inspection... I found that it had been issued all the way back in 1914. I flipped it over and looked at the back. There, two eyes had been drawn with black ink. They were sketched, but the level of detail was shockingly realistic. They were clearly the eyes of a human, and yet something was off about them. The sclera looked scarred and inflamed, and the pupils were misshapen oblong and contorted, as if they were leaking out of the iris like a punctured egg yolk. The eyes were creepy, but I was more disturbed by the fact that I didn't know where the bill had come from, or how it had ended up in my hand. Keeping the bill folded in my palm, I looked over my shoulder. Hey, Sean, I said, do you remember what the last person ordered? I forgot to put their money in the cash register. Sean set down the knife midway through chopping an onion. What person, he said. This place is a ghost town. The last customer must have been half an hour ago. I felt a shudder ripple through me, but I stifled it. Yeah, that must have been them, I said. Sean looked at me suspiciously. Just press the miscellaneous button on the cash register and it'll open, he said. I opened the register and took one last look at the garish eyes that had been drawn on the bill before slipping it into the cash drawer. I placed it at the bottom of the stack of tens so I wouldn't have to see it next time I opened the drawer. At the end of my shift, I balanced the cash register. I wasn't surprised to find that we were ten dollars over. I knew I hadn't been mistaken. That bill hadn't come from a customer. Something about its presence felt more sinister than the result of a simple transaction. But I didn't want anything to do with it. It wasn't my problem. My boss could sort it out, I thought. I clocked out and drove home as the sun was rising from behind Mount Dutton. The colonies of aspen trees that lined the foothills to the east were just beginning to come alive for the spring, and the morning dew that coated their budding leaves was glistening in the sunlight. I tapped a pocket of my jeans, looking for my crumpled pack of cigarettes. They weren't there, but I felt something crinkle in my pocket under the pressure of my finger. It was flat and paper-like. I felt a sinking sensation in my gut as I reached my hand into my pocket 
and pulled out a $10 bill. I hardly even needed to look at it to see that it was the same one I'd found in the restaurant. It can't be, I said to myself. I was certain I'd left it in the till. I could remember sliding it into the bottom of the stack of tens. And yet, here it was, those horrid eyes looking back at me once again. I wound down my window, crumpled the bill into a ball, and chucked it out on the highway. Then, after finally finding my cigarettes in the glove box, I lit one up and leaned back in my chair. For the rest of the drive home, I tried to convince myself that nicotine on an empty stomach was the reason my hands were shaking. Not what I'd thrown out the window a few miles back. By the time I got back to the house I rented in Parowan, I was already considering quitting my job at the Red Hat and never going back. The truth is, I didn't really need the money. I had enough cash to live off of, at least for a few years. But I'd given up and run away from enough things in my life. Some part of me felt a need to stay, to find out what was really going on at the Red Hat. But first, I needed sleep. I went upstairs into my bedroom and lay down. My rest was fitful, and again as I slept, I had the crushing dream. I was surrounded by pure darkness, and I could feel the weight beginning to bear down on my chest. I looked up and saw the figure in the hat towering over me. It was the same person I had seen in the parking lot a few weeks before. His ragged duster was draped over his shoulders as he looked down at me. I could see almost no detail of his face aside from his eyes. They looked somehow familiar, seeming to shift and contort like messy ink blots. The weight of him was nearly unbearable. I tried to scream, but there was no breath left in me. I could feel my ribs cracking, could feel the blood vessels in my face and neck exploding. And just as my chest cavity felt like it was about to collapse, I awoke in breathless terror. As I lay there in my bed, sweating through my sheets, I knew it was time for me to do something. I couldn't stand the specter lurking over my shoulder for another minute. There was something haunting my place of work, and by proxy it was haunting me. Although it didn't just seem like the activity I'd experienced was tied purely to the restaurant itself. It seemed to me like the whole area was haunted, the figure in the hat and the group of hunters had all been outside the red hat, and the voice I'd heard had originated from outside too. I wondered if I could find some answers by looking into the history of the local area. The spot where the red hat stood was at the eastern foot of the Black Mountains, and being that they were the restaurant's closest landmark, I decided to start there. Most of what I came across were accounts of early settlers and documents provided by various expeditions. I read about the nearby Parowan Gap petroglyphs, an assortment of geometric shapes and patterns carved into jagged pieces of Navajo sandstone. There was apparently still debate as to how the petroglyphs were meant to be interpreted, with archaeologists and Native American sources offering theories across the board. The unanswered questions about the petroglyphs gave the area a new mystique in my mind. But it wasn't in the ancient wall art that I found a lead as to what I was dealing with. Instead, 
It was in the account of an early Mormon settlement in the Parowan Valley. I found a document titled A History of the Stoddard Settlement while searching through an archive in the public library's online database. It was written by a man named Ephraim Stoddard, who settled at the base of the Black Mountains with his four wives and thirteen children in the late 1800s. They tended a farm on their property, and by the early 1900s they'd erected a small trading post, apparently not far from the spot where the Red Hat now stood. By 1910, several other families had joined the Stoddard settlement. Most of the document was unexciting, consisting of the day-to-day -day struggles of farm life, battling the elements in Utah's harsh, high-desert climate, and mostly legible records of important dates, such as birthdays, baptisms, marriages, and deaths. It was in this final category that I uncovered a summary of events titled The Attempted Execution of the Parowan Valley Pariah. I found it odd that an article so provocative would be buried among monotonous death records and obituaries. It seemed almost as though the author had intended for this piece to remain hidden. In the account, Stoddard claimed that beginning in late 1913, members of the settlement began to spot a vagrant roaming the landscape of their 400-acre property. They described the vagrant as a tall man wearing low-hanging black coat and ragged, full-brimmed hat. Despite having been spotted by several members of the Stoddard party, the man was apparently so elusive that nobody managed to confront him until midway through the winter of 1914. A group that was returning from Salt Lake City with provisions came across his campsite, which was wedged between two broken portions of a massive fractured boulder. They noted immediately that there was something off about the man. His eyes seemed constantly to change shape, one of them reportedly said. His pupils were round, then they were oblong, then they were slit like a cat's. They asked the vagrant what he was doing there, to which he apparently responded by simply repeating the question back to them, claiming in a low, baritone voice that he had been on that property since long before they had arrived. Although he didn't simply refer to their party as they. He reportedly knew Ephraim Stoddard by name as well as several of the other patriarchs living in the community. They told him, in so many words, that he had to vacate the property. Then the party continued their journey home. When they got back to the homestead, they found that both of the 50-pound sacks of flour they'd purchased in Salt Lake City were infected with mold. They opened the bags of rice and cornmeal and found that the mold had infected them as well. It was black and slimy, and it produced a rotten odor, detectable immediately upon opening the bag. The members of the party that had returned with the supplies insisted that they had been inspected upon purchase, not 48 hours before, and that at that time the rations had looked perfectly acceptable. There was something, they said, about the man they'd encountered at the edge of the property, there had been something wrong with that man, with his eyes like globs of liquid suspended in great white fish bowls. And, being that he'd been the only person they'd encountered on their return trip, they suspected that he might have done something to tarnish their supplies. 
Exactly how he'd done it, they couldn't say. He hadn't come close enough to touch any of them. Yet all three men shared the same hunch that this stranger, this pariah, was somehow responsible for the spoiling of their rations. Eager to defend their assertion, the three men set out on horseback for the man's camp. If they couldn't find him responsible, they at least planned to make sure he vacated their property. But when they arrived at his campsite, they found it empty. The man left behind a tapestry of deer and elk hides that he had been tanning. Several vials of black liquid were left behind as well. Feeling their suspicions strengthened by the presence of this mysterious black liquid, the men searched the barren mountainside for the pariah. Even as night fell, they continued their search, but could not find him. They searched until a series of frantic screams came echoing out of the valley below them. The three men hurried back to the homestead, whereupon Kurt Melgrove, one of the members of the search party, noticed the front door to his cabin wide open. The dim glow of a lantern was illuminating the cabin from the interior, and there Kurt could make out the figure of his wife, Madison, crying hysterically over the crib of their newborn child, a baby of only six weeks that they had named Jackson. Kurt and the other two men sprinted into the cabin, around which several other concerned members of the community had gathered. As he stepped through the door of his cabin, Kurt could hear not only the screams of his wife, but the shrill cries of his son, Jackson, as well. Relieved that the child was still alive, Kurt approached the crib, where he saw the child lying face down. He was said to have shown little restraint as he grabbed his frail wife by the shoulders and began shouting at her. The boy will suffocate like that, he cried. What are you doing? He shook his wife, but couldn't snap her out of her hysteria. Turning, he lifted the child from the crib and turned it over in his hands. But as he did, the expression on his face slackened. Ephraim Stoddard, who was reportedly standing a few feet away, wrote that he saw the life go out of Kurt Melgrove's eyes when he picked up the child. Kurt turned the boy over in his hands once again, but the expression of desperate confusion on his face only deepened. His face, Kurt began to say. Why can't I see his face? Stoddard lifted his lantern and inspected the child. It was only then that he understood what Kurt was muttering about. It was as though no matter what way they looked at the child, they couldn't see his face. They turned him over and over again, listening to his piercing cries, and still they only managed to glimpse the back of his head. As the child's body turned, Stoddard wrote, wailing under the flickering light of the lantern, it seemed always for a split second to have the makings of a face peeking around the edge of its twisting cranium. But within an instant, as its swaddled form was righted before our eyes, we realized to our astonishment that we were again looking at the back of the child's body. It wasn't as though its face was gone, for we could still hear its screaming. Instead, it was as though there was something inhibiting us from being able to see the face of the poor child 
Something that could manipulate our very perceptions. Certain that some kind of heretical black magic had been cast upon their community, the men took up arms and resumed their search. After leaving the faceless child with its frantic mother, they lurched out into the darkness, lanterns swinging from the barrels of their loaded rifles. It was clear, Stoddard noted, the decisive emotional change that had overtaken the men since finding the child. They were no longer out to make sure this man left their property. They were out for blood. As they mounted a small plateau, the men noticed a form standing silently atop its flat surface, only a few dozen feet away from them. Slowly, they approached. When their lanterns illuminated the wide-brimmed hat, they knew they'd found their mark. Don't move, Stoddard called out. We've got you surrounded. Though he admitted in his records of the event that this was merely a bluff. Still, the stranger made no attempt to flee. He surrendered to them willfully, though he apparently refused to give them any sort of name. When asked, he simply shrugged. I don't have a name, the man said. Names are for men. I am a disease. Kurt was so enraged by the man that he had to be restrained from pummeling him with the butt of his rifle. What did you do to my son? He was screaming. But the man said nothing. He just walked with them in silence back to the homestead. When they arrived at the block of cabins, members of the community erected a makeshift gallows out of lumber they'd used to corral the livestock. The man watched indifferently as Stoddard tied a noose out of a length of rope. Bystanders yelled and hurled stones. This is your chance to make things right, Stoddard said to the man, leaning in and draping the noose around his neck to let him know he was serious. Just let us see the child's face. If this is some kind of trick, some kind of illusion you've managed to pull off, just turn it back. Let us see that the child is healthy and we'll let you walk out of here alive. The man looked at him grimly, the unshapely pupils in his eyes turning and contorting. Is that what you make me out to be? he asked. A magician? A trickster? That would make us one in the same, would it not? After all, it was something of a disappearing act you pulled on your previous family, before moving out here to Utah and impregnating another slate of young women. The bystanders fell silent, torches and lanterns burning in their hands. Stoddard gave the order to pull up the slack. The tightening of the rope knocked the man's hat off his head, and it fell to the dusty earth where it lay. You have no business talking about my family, Stoddard said. Just tell us what you did to the child. With the noose pulling the skin tight around his jaw, the man smiled. In a near whisper, he said, But the child is your family, Mr. Stoddard. Is he not? What is he talking about? Kurt asked, almost shouting over the commotion. But Stoddard didn't have the heart to acknowledge him. He simply gave the signal for his men to hang the man. With their weathered hands gripping the rope, the men hoisted with all their strength. Just as they saw the man's slender form lift from the ground, an impossibly powerful gust of wind tore through the community. 
The wind was so strong and frigid that it immediately extinguished all the torches and lanterns that had been illuminating the area. And right as they were plunged into darkness, the men that were pulling the rope felt it inexplicably slacken. They toppled onto their backs as chaos seemed to erupt around them. A few minutes later, as lanterns began to light back up in the crowd, the members of the community observed the fallout from whatever had taken place. Whether he was alive or dead, the man's body was gone. The rope that had been around his neck now sat loosely around the neck of a goat that was sitting peacefully below the gallows. Stoddard recognized the goat as one of their own, an American pygmy that the children called Percy. But how the goat had gotten out of its corral and ended up there with a rope around its neck, and more importantly, how the rope had gotten off the neck of the stranger while he was suspended in midair, were not questions that anybody could readily answer. After the madness subsided, Kurt returned to his cabin to check on Jackson, but he found the child's crib empty. He stumbled outside where he saw his wife a few yards away, looking down at one of the water troughs that the horses drank out of. When he got to within a few paces, he could see the child's lifeless body floating in the water. What did you do? he asked his wife. But he already knew she was too far gone to offer him a rational answer. There was something wrong with him, was all she said. He wasn't my Jackson anymore. Kurt fell to his knees and lifted the boy's body out of the water. In the light of his lantern, Stoddard could see the boy's face clearly. It was blue and shriveled, like a rubber mask with dead staring eyes. Whatever transpired in the days following that event, Stoddard didn't say. He did note that the goat, Percy, was killed and buried about a mile from the homestead, as a growing number of people became convinced that the animal now contained the spirit of the pariah. In the afterward, Stoddard claimed that he had recorded the series of events as honestly and factually as possible. He admitted that this honesty had come at a cost to him. He lost his friendship with Kurt because of it. And it could have come at an even greater cost, if the community at large had heard what the stranger had said to him before he vanished. I could have lied about what happened, Stoddard wrote, about why I wanted him dead. I could have lied about what he said, about how he knew I was Jackson's father. But I have reported these events exactly as they have occurred. Not because I'm vying for the reader's sympathy, or because I want my actions to appear just, but because something that simply defies my understanding of God's creation has occurred here. When I'd finished reading the document, I was at a loss for words. Was it possible that the hat-wearing man I'd seen was the same one that terrorized the Stoddard settlement? I wanted to read more from Stoddard on the matter, but he didn't provide any further comment on the pariah, and his writings stopped altogether when the settlement disbanded in the mid-1920s. I decided to dig deeper into reports from around the local area. I wanted to know if this figure had been spotted in the years since. Reporting was scarce in the area, 
but I did uncover a brief article online that made mention of a car accident about five miles north of the Red Hat in 1986. A man had apparently been driving north along I-15 with his wife when he came around a corner and was shocked to see a dark figure standing in the road, dressed in a long coat and a low-sitting hat. The driver swerved off the road, flipping his car and nearly killing he and his wife. But to his astonishment, as first responders arrived a few minutes later, there was nobody else present at the scene. The dark figure he had swerved to avoid was gone. On its own, the account seemed inconsequential. But when taken with what I had just read, it was reason enough for me to believe that my suspicions were confirmed that the Parowan Valley pariah might actually be real, and that he might still be stalking that open stretch of desert. I dreaded the thought of returning to work that night, and to think I had come to that place hoping to find solitude. Now I felt more at risk, more agitated than I had been since I'd found that place. But I was still faced with that persistent assertion that I had run away from enough in my life. Fleeing from my demons was not the answer, something seemed to be telling me. So I showed up for my shift that night. I was certainly rattled after that afternoon's reading material, but already I was trying to calm myself down, trying to insist that what I'd read amounted to nothing more than urban legend, though it wasn't a belief that would be long held. The minute I clocked in for work, my boss, Melanie, called me into her office. She was sitting at her desk, on which sat a stack of six monitors displaying feeds of the restaurant's security cameras. I looked at her, and then at the ten-dollar bill on her desk. Come in, she said. Have a seat. I felt the seat of the chair press against my cold, sweaty back as I sat down. Do you know where this bill came from? she asked. Her rosy cheeks tried to assemble a smile, but it looked more like a cordial frown. I... I tried. What about this? She said, turning her attention to her keyboard. She pulled up the video of the previous night. The grainy, black-and-white video footage showing Sean and I standing around in the kitchen. I felt a cold pit forming in my stomach as I watched in anticipation. And then, there it was. In the upper left corner of the frame was the old Lincoln Town Car pulling into the drive-thru. Just as I'd experienced it, the car vanished right after. But before it was gone, for a split second, there was a single frame that appeared to show me, leaning out the window and talking to the driver of the car. Then the car was gone, and I was standing a few feet from the window. I don't understand, I said. Why did it glitch like that? You tell me, Melanie said. It almost seems like you took that customer's money and then tried to destroy the evidence. I looked at the receipts and there were no transactions that occurred around that time. That's ludicrous, I said. I don't even know how to edit video footage. And besides, why would I steal $10 from someone just to put it in the till? No sooner had I finished speaking the words than my eyes were drawn to the camera monitors. I looked at the camera that was fixed on the parking lot just outside the front door. On the edge of the screen, as the parking lot gave way to darkness, 
I saw that familiar fluttering movement. Melanie, I think something's wrong, I said. Why can't you just tell me where this bill came from, she asked. No, Melanie, I said. The movement was closer now, just outside the front door. And then, as if on its own accord, the door suddenly swung open. I turned my eyes to the monitor that showed the feed from the kitchen. I could see Sean stooping over the grill before turning to see who was there. I glanced at the feed of the dining room, but it showed nothing, just more of that fuzzy distortion. Until, slowly, a figure started to take shape, arising from the pixelated distortion and standing at the counter. His ragged hat lay draped over his eyes, his arms hanging limply at his sides. And was he saying something to Sean? His lips seemed to be moving, but the camera feed didn't have audio. Melanie, I said, seriously. On the screen, I saw Sean reach down and adjust the temperature knob on the deep fryer. Then he looked back up at the man in the hat. Sean had a chilling expression on his face. He looked obedient, docile in an uncharacteristic way. In the background, I could see smoke beginning to rise from the deep fryer. Melanie, I said, I think... Finally, she turned and looked at the camera feed, just as a massive grease fire erupted from the deep fryer. Sean! she screamed. The two of us sprinted from her office and out into the restaurant's dining room, where stood the man in the ragged deerskin hat, his back to us, his eyes fixed on Sean, Sean still appeared to be in that strange, docile state. The lights were on, but nobody was home. Ever so subtly, the man in the hat seemed to nod at Sean. And then, without warning, Sean turned and thrust his face straight down into the burning pot of oil. An unavoidable tremor coursed through me as I watched the flames devour Sean's upper body as I smelled the burning oil incinerating his face. Melanie ran for the fire extinguisher, hanging from the back wall, which was nearly consumed by flames. Just as she did, a second 40-gallon container of vegetable oil exploded. The blast knocked me off my feet, nearly vaporizing Sean and Melanie. It happened so fast that I didn't even hear her scream. My skin singed, my ears ringing, and with flames progressing across what was left of the restaurant, I fought through the smoke to drag myself outside. As I pushed through the door and stumbled onto the sidewalk outside, I fell to my hands and knees, purging the smoke from my lungs with deep, hacking coughs. When I regained myself, I saw a pair of boots on the pavement before me. I tilted my eyes skyward, seeing the ancient duster, the rippling, shapeless eyes set deep in the sockets of his indifferent face and encircled by the brim of his hat like a great halo of darkness. My inclination was to back away from him, but with the restaurant burning at full bore behind me, I had nowhere to run. I could feel the heat of the flames at my back, could see their burning red glow reflected in the face of the man standing before me. I got slowly to my feet, but even when I stood before him, the man still towered over me. I glanced to the side at the empty parking lot, 
running away again? He asked. I tried to formulate a response, but my mouth remained clamped shut. That was you, right? He went on. You who ran out here to Utah after your father died? Or should I say, after you and your brother killed him? No, I tried to say, but the man went on undeterred. You had a right, I'll give you that. There's only so much abuse you can take. Only so much you can watch your sibling endure. And, after all, it was his idea, wasn't it? It was your brother that taught you what it meant to be listed as a beneficiary on someone's life insurance policy. You were only 13 at the time, but you knew what your brother was getting you into, didn't you? I shook my head. No, I tried to say again, but my plea was useless. He waited until a Saturday afternoon, when your dad was working on his Corvette. Your old man was laying on the ground, directly underneath the drive shaft, when you and your brother crept into the garage and started rocking the car back and forth on its jack. Your dear old dad barely had the chance to yell out before the jack toppled and the car crushed him. What were his parting words again? Oh yes, that's right, he shouted that he was going to slaughter you. Standing there, all those years after my father's death, I could still hear his dying words clear as day. I could hear the air being squeezed from his lungs, could hear the car's weight crushing his ribcage and rupturing his internal organs. On the day it had actually happened, I had run away, unable to withstand the experience. But now there was nowhere for me to run. All I could do was cut my hands over my ears, squeeze my eyes shut and pray for it to stop. I could feel the heat of the fire at my back like the flames of hell beckoning me to my burning demise. And for a moment, I almost welcomed the idea of being devoured by the flames. Anything, even eternal damnation, would be a reprieve from... But then, my father's wailing voice suddenly stopped. I took a slow, stuttering breath, tentatively opening one eye and then the other. The man was gone. I heard a low rumble over the crackling of the flames. Still shaking, I turned and saw an old Lincoln town car pulling out of the far corner of the parking lot and driving towards the highway. There were a lot of things I didn't understand in that moment, and chief among them was, why had my life been spared? As the Lincoln drove off into the night, I could hear the sirens of the approaching fire trucks. I wondered if my second chance at life had been given to me on the condition that I wouldn't run away again, that I would stay and explain what happened. I owed that much to Sean and Melanie's families at the very least. But still, I found myself running across the parking lot, getting into my car and driving north as fast as I could go. There was simply too much about it that I couldn't explain. I wouldn't have been able to tell the investigators why Sean had started the fire, or why he had apparently fed his own body to the flames. And I definitely wouldn't have been able to explain why a goat from a nearby farm had been left tied to the sign out in front of the restaurant. I haven't stopped running since that night. I know that the police still want to talk to me regarding the fire at the Red Hat, 
but it's not really the police I'm running from. I can't shake the feeling that I owe somebody a debt. There's a $10 bill that's always in my pocket. I don't even bother trying to get rid of it anymore because I know it'll come back. And I have a feeling it will remain there, neatly folded in my pocket, until the day that its owner decides it's time to collect. Hey, uh, if you're still listening, I want to first say thank you. I really, really appreciate everybody that has checked out the show and listened and written to me. Um, I also want to let you know that I have a Patreon. If you sign up for a $3 donation, you get to hear every episode a few days early. And you also get access to my audiobook, Solace. It's over eight hours long. It's kind of a cosmic horror uh, slash thriller mystery. It follows a burned-out journalist that becomes obsessed with an unexplained missing persons case. You can hear the first 30 minutes of the audiobook on the episode titled Solace. And if you like it, definitely check it out. Subscribe. Uh, you can listen to the Patreon feed, obviously, on the Patreon mobile app. Or you can listen on whatever podcast app you like. There's a private RSS feed that you can plug into whatever app you use. And uh, yeah, the book is broken up into sections, so it's a little easier to keep track of where you're at. Check it out. It's patreon.com slash A-C-E-P-H-A-L-E. There is also a link in the show notes of this episode and in the bio of the show that you can click on. So yeah, that's all from me. Um, if you enjoy the show, please leave a rating or a review. And... Yeah, thank you so much. I seriously appreciate you guys. Hello, friends. This is Mark Nell, executive producer of the Table Read podcast, where imagination meets performance. As we wrap up an incredible season one, we want to take a moment to express our heartfelt gratitude to each and every one of you who tuned in and supported us on this amazing journey. Season one was nothing short of extraordinary. We delved into captivating scripts that transported us to worlds beyond our imagination, thanks to the brilliant writers who delivered these works. But what really brought these stories to life were the talents of our amazing actors. But wait, the excitement doesn't end there. As we bid farewell to season one, we are thrilled to announce the launch of season Season two, get ready for more gripping narratives, more unforgettable characters, and more mesmerizing performances that will keep you on the edge of your seat. We have some big surprises coming. The Force will definitely be with you. So stay tuned, stay engaged, and most importantly, stay excited. From all of us at the Table Read Podcast, thank you, and let's make season two even more memorable together. <laughs>